Very nice chanting tonight. <laughs> We've got a little bit more chanting to do before, before I talk. And that is, uh, we're going to do 27 goddess mantras. Uh, <clears throat> and this is for the world, for peace and for freedom from disease and so on. And these are the mantras and they cover the whole field of all the goddesses, the solid goddesses, the vital goddesses, and the peculiar goddesses. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, these are bija mantras, or seed mantras, which represent all the different energies of the goddess. So we'll chant these 27 times for the sake of everyone. Everyone here, everyone online, and everyone in the world uh, may uh, the order, the divine order, be restored and enhanced, and may everyone everywhere be happy and peaceful. So let's do that now.
Did we do 27 or 27 times 2? <laughs> Which do we do? What? Two times? No. One time? Okay. Sanmane ke saath With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. <coughs> and uh, it's very cold here in Melbourne tonight. It's a real cold snap. I spoke to an old uh, friend uh, from my Baba days in North America today, and I told him, oh, it's so cold here. He says, it's burning hot here. There are fires everywhere it's in California. So what does it all mean? <laughs> Baba says, one place it's freezing cold, the other place it's burning hot. And we just did that chant, Om Guru, and it took me back 40 years to when we did it around Baba. And uh, so what does it all mean? Only the self is real. Only the self is real. <clears throat> Everything else is a, a dream. Or as Shakespeare would say, it's a tale told by an idiot, <laughs> full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Yeah. <clears throat> that was written by Shakespeare or a different man of the same name. <clears throat> so, um, Tonight, uh, one of my favorite programs, uh, it's called Ganeshpuri Days. And actually, my memoir is named after this program. It's not the other way, because I've been doing this program for I don't know how many years. <clears throat> and it features as its star, 
Swami Baba Muktananda. The Ganeshpuri Baba, though, as we say, there, were, there was not just one Baba, there were at least two different Babas, let's say, to be simple. <clears throat> one was the Baba of the world tours, and um, he, he would be speaking to 1,000, 2,000 people a night, uh, people who weren't ashramites, they didn't have the ashram experience, they came from all walks of life, and he spoke to them about the highest truth. You are the self, the self is within you, you are beautiful, you are consciousness. Meditate on that self. And it was beautiful and uplifting. Uh, but before that, the Baba I had heard was the Ganeshpuri Baba. And it was a different situation. And he spoke perfectly to his audience. And we were a small group of very avid seekers, and he had us all where he wanted us. We were trapped in an ashram out in the country in India, far from home, and he burned us in every way. <laughs> he worked on us very hard, and he, uh, uh, he was very interested in our intense growth. That was a whole different thing. He hardly ever said, you are the self. He said, you're not doing enough, and fried us. Uh, well, it wasn't quite that bad, but this is the Ganeshpuri Baba. <clears throat> And you can tell that's Ganeshpuri Baba because he doesn't have a shirt on and his, his beard and hair are long and woolly. And he uh, looks great. Next. And this is Baba giving a talk in his room. Uh, and he's giving out prasad that the, uh, the wife of the uh, tea shop owner next door made. They would be uh, uh, dosas, no, idlis. Italy, and he would give out his prasad, and he's having a great time talking to us and giving out the prasad. Next. And here's Baba in the courtyard in front of his apartment. That's his little perch on the courtyard, and uh, he'd meet everyone there several times a day. There's his attendant, Noni, now Swami Sevananda, still in Ganeshpuri. And uh, I've identified the third gentleman, Sri Daga. Uh, I've told you about that, him. You know about him? You'd have to tell the story again. I will? Oh, anyway, he, uh, he showed up at the, uh, the Maha Mandaleshwar ceremony that uh, I suffered a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he showed up as a very old man. And he was just full of, full of sweet love, and he was crying. He was so sweet and moved. It was very nice to see him. He's passed on since then. He was a uh, he was the financial reporter for the uh, Indian Express, one of the major newspapers there. But he was full of love for God. So next, what else? That's it. Okay. So these are question answers from from my Ganeshpur days, my days with Baba in the Indian ashram in the early 70s. Um, <clears throat> so, here we go. This one is from July 20th, 1973. And the, uh, the uh, questioner is Girish B. This is Girish A. <laughs> it says Girish B in the book. I don't know who that is. <clears throat> it must be one of the Indian devotees. And he asked this question. And see, Baba, Baba talked to us about many things, very specific things, 
that later on in the big programs in the West, he didn't talk about, like diet, like uh, details of practice and sadhana and, and discipline and uh, how to live the life, you know, daily practice and so on. <clears throat> so looking back, it's very interesting. At the time, as I said, every word he said was like, a, a, like hot molten lead going through me for some reason. Uh, I wouldn't have traded for anything, though. Girish B says, how can one know if the meditation of a particular session has been of sufficient duration so that a sadhaka, a seeker, may attend to his other duties? This is a typical neurotic ashramic question. How can I know? <clears throat> Baba says, in the course of time, your meditation becomes quite regular. After you get used to sitting for a certain length of time, you will come out of meditation automatically when that time is over. If you habituate your body to a certain routine, it follows that routine automatically without your having to keep a watch over it. Now Baba's on his favorite theme of discipline. And here he goes. <clears throat> Such is the nature of the body that right until the very last moment it keeps the regular schedule to which it's accustomed. It's my habit to get up at a quarter to three. That's quarter to three in the morning every morning. Uh, no matter how tired I may be when I go to sleep. <clears throat> After I get up once I may lie down again but I always wake up at 2.45. I cannot remain asleep at that time. If I'm eating, I eat only until I hear the sound O oh, from inside. <laughs> it's a memorable line. I never could understand quite what it was. Do you hear a sound O? Oh? <laughs> There's a... <laughs> the moment I hear that sound, I push my plate away and stop eating. Even when I just picked up a morsel to put in my mouth, I put it down. That's why it's necessary to accustom your body to good habits. The same applies to meditation. Can you form a habit of sitting in, once you form a habit of sitting in meditation for a certain length of time, your body will come out of it automatically when that period is over. So discipline, discipline, discipline. <clears throat> He also spoke about the guru, and this particular question um, sort of changed my understanding. So I remember it. It's by uh, uh, an American girl named Godi. And Godi was the, uh, eventually was the photographer. A lot of the great photos of Baba in later years were by uh, Godi. She, at this time, she was about about 17 or 18 years old. She'd come all the way to India and she stayed with Baba for a long time. <clears throat> she asks, how does one please the guru? It's a bhakti's question. <clears throat> and Baba says, you don't have to please the guru. If you become pleased with the guru, the guru is automatically pleased with you. This reversed my understanding. Because I was always tortured I can admit it now, by the question, the really stupid question, does Baba love me? The terrible and stupid question that bhaktas have. And uh, so 
And uh, I describe it in my book how I finally realized that I had set up a no-win situation. If he was nice to me, it proved he was just indulging me. And if he was mean to me, it proved he didn't love me. So both proved he didn't love me. So I had set up a, a no-win no situation. Anyway, Baba goes on. The guru is ever fulfilled. The guru is ever contented. And he's always swaying in joy, in ecstasy. So how does this question, the question of pleasing him arise? All his desires have been gratified. So how can there be a question of pleasing him when he's all the time swaying with bliss? <laughs> if the disciple becomes fully pleased with the guru, with all his heart, he should think that the guru has become fully pleased with him. And this again, that theme that Baba stressed with the disciple's grace. The guru's grace is there, but the, the variable is our, the grace we give the guru. In other words, our openness. The, the shakti, the possibility of experiencing the shakti is always available. It's always there. But are we always there? No, we're not always there. We're caught in some drama, some, some uh, anger, fear, sadness, some fantasy, something, that, some gripe that, that connects us, that, uh, that, that prevents that flow. <clears throat> Baba says, everybody has his own nature, and also, and so does the guru. And the nature of the guru is that he's ever content, ever fulfilled. He lacks nothing. The guru is content whether a rich person or a poor person approaches him. If a beggar comes and takes two pieces of cloth from him, it does not affect his contentment. On the other hand, if a rich devotee comes and brings two large bundles of cloth as a gift, that too does not affect his contentment. Some devotees come and give 2,000 rupees for holding an open feast. <clears throat> the guru is content. And if thousands of people come and eat that feast, the guru is content. The guru is content regardless of what one gives or one takes. The only way to please the guru is to be pleased with the guru yourself. Just to look at the guru should overwhelm you with love. Just to look at the guru should release great happiness within you. That would be an indication that the guru is pleased with you. So I got a whole different understanding, reversed my narcissistic worries. <clears throat> In fact, the guru is a sort of a middleman who is doing his work for nothing. <laughs> Middleman between God and you. <clears throat> Therefore, the way to please the guru is to be pleased with the guru yourself, to surrender yourself to him, to be pleased with him every moment of your life would indicate that the guru has become pleased with you. You don't have to do anything else to please him. <clears throat> it is the disciples' pleasure with the guru which is of the greatest, far greater significance than the guru's pleasure with the disciple. This is interesting now. Even if the guru is pleased and the disciple is not pleased, <clears throat> if the disciple is bitter with the guru, then the guru's pleasure would not be able to help the disciple at all. There were so many with whom my guru was pleased, but because of their own bitterness, they've come to nothing. There were certain people who tried by fair or foul means to grab what was Baba's, but whatever they grabbed has been grabbed away from them. If the disciple is fully pleased, 
then the guru is fully satisfied with him. And then Baba told the story, long story, which uh, I've told before, but I'll summarize. It's the story of Eklavia, uh, the tribal boy, and Dronacharya, the archery guru. He's from the Mahabharat. Many of you know, but some of you don't. Eklavia was uh, uh, a, an Aravasi boy, and uh, Dronacharya was the guru, the archery guru, to all the princes. And so there was a big caste problem. Dronacharya was low caste, and so he wasn't going to be accepted as a, as a disciple by the, the, uh, the archery guru. So he went and he was rejected, but he wasn't uh, upset by it at all. He went back to his little hut, and he, um, he built a statue of Dronacharya, the man who'd rejected him, and he worshipped the statue. He did puja to the statue. He sat and meditated. And because of his love for the guru, all the guru's knowledge of archery came into him. And he practiced and he learned all the secrets and techniques by subtle means. <clears throat> and uh, he even learned a particular shot that none of the princes had learned. And that was Baba described. He shot a, a, <laughs> a dog and he stitched the arrow into his teeth without hurting the dog. And the, so the princes saw this dog with an arrow in his teeth a certain way, and they said, who made that shot? And they brought it to the guru. And the guru said, who, who made that shot? He said, that's a secret technique that I've taught no one. They said, go find the, find the person who made the shot. And so they looked around, they saw Dronacharya with, I mean, Clavia uh, with his... Um, bow and arrow, and they said, uh, did you make this shot? He said, oh, yeah. They said, um, who told you that? He said, Dronacharya. So they brought him to the guru. Dronacharya said, who told you? He said, you did. <clears throat> and so, um, yeah. oh, no, don't tell apart. It gets really worse. <laughs> he was so surrendered. It's the point Bob was making. It gets grisly, please, I can't tell that. <laughs> David, not very naughty to bring that up. <laughs> oh, you weren't going to tell that part? I wasn't going to, no. <laughs> Sorry. Huh? <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> you want to hear that part? <laughs> Trigger alert! Yeah, so then the, the guru said, well, if you're my disciple and you're so surrendered, cut off your thumb. So he did. He couldn't, then he couldn't shoot anymore, but he was so surrendered. Uh, I don't know what happened next. His thumb grew back. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, his thumb grew back. That's right. Yeah, thank God. Uh, anyway, um, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is that that uh, Eklavia, even though the guru rejected him, Eklavia was so open that he drew all the teachings right to him because it was much more important. His, he was so happy with the guru. He was so happy with the guru. He drew the shakti to him. And the guru had no control over it. His, his shakti just got drawn out of him. <laughs> and and uh, couldn't stop it. <clears throat> And Baba says, and this is exactly what Shaktipat is. Shaktipat 
in Shaktipat, the guru himself enters the disciple in his fullness and becomes fully active within him. Most people do not understand this, and because they do not fully understand the nature, the grandeur, and the glory of the Shakti, that they are not able to develop fully. It is the inner Shakti of the self which the guru transmits into his disciple. The guru is, enters his disciple in seed form. Therefore, before starting to please the guru, you should start pleasing yourself. When the disciple becomes fully pleased with the guru, he's able to make the guru fully active within him. He's able to get the full advantage of the guru's shakti within him, even if the guru is displeased with him. So you don't have to worry about uh, some kind of relationship. You have to have the relationship with the inner shakti. And the inner shakti will tell you when the guru is pleased with you and when you're pleased with the guru. Because if you're full of devotion, you'll feel that surge of inner shakti. And this is the esoteric aspect of the yoga, this inner experience. And we, as yogis, we have to learn to grow that experience, to enhance that experience. There are many obstacles to having that experience, and they all lie within our own psyche, our own ego, our own attachments, our aversions, our wrong understandings. They, they stop the increase of that shakti. And we have, the shakti itself is our greatest guru, is our greatest teacher. And if we move in the right direction inwardly, then that shakti expands and we have a greater contact until such time that we dwell in that shakti all the time. <clears throat> so Baba goes on. One who does not have the faith that it is the guru himself who is active within him in the form of shakti does not deserve to be a disciple. He is a fake disciple. A disciple should not be like a plastic mannequin which you find in the showcases of different shops when you go window shopping. <laughs> what does that mean? Baba went window shopping. Baba went window shopping. <laughs> you may remember the story of what Krishna said to the gopis. Now this is from Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, the whole relationship between Krishna and the gopis. It's beautiful, extraordinary. Um, once a controversy took place between Krishna and the gopis, they were always arguing with him, and Krishna pretended to be angry with them. <clears throat> of course, he's never angry with the gopis. The gopis have so much devotion. Um, this, and Baba says, this is what happens in the play of love. There's a feigned anger and so on. Krishna threatened, saying, I'm going to go away from here. And he did. He did, but he was playing at that point. The gopis said, please don't go away. Krishna said, no, I must. The gopis, you must not. Krishna, no, we must. I must. The gopis, all right, if you want to go, but we want to see how you can depart from our hearts. This, and Baba says, this made Krishna absolutely speechless. Because even Krishna didn't have the power to go away from the hearts of the gopis. See, the guru, the guru is helpless. If the devotion is there, the guru can't stop it. <laughs> so it is the disciple, Baba says, who should be pleased with the guru in his heart. If the disciple becomes fully pleased with the guru, with all his heart, 
it shows that he's done all that was necessary for him to do. You like that answer? Yeah. See, that's so Ganeshpuri Baba. Baba wouldn't talk about that in, uh, in the big programs in the West. And there's a, then uh, there's a little note. Apparently, um, they'd just come back, we had just come back from a trip to Alandi, which is the birthplace of uh, Yaneshwar Maharaj, who's one of Baba's favorite Maharashtrian saints. And we all went, uh, I went on at least one trip to, to Alandi there, so it must have been that trip. Uh, and Baba says, our trip to Alandi was extremely good. Muridhar Dut looked after all of us in a most generous and beautiful manner with all his heart, and everything took place on schedule. So Muridhar Dut was a, a wealthy Bombay devotee, and Baba often went to his, stayed at his house and did programs at his house uh, in, on the water in Bombay, but, so he organized this trip. I'm saying this to bring your attention to the fact that there are some people here who, in spite of the fact that they get everything here on time, are late for every session. They come 15 minutes late to Guru Gita and five minutes late for the RT. Yet Murlida was not late for anything. <laughs> in spite of the fact so, you see, my reaction to that is, am I late? Do I come late? It's not me. Okay, good. Whew. And then I look around, who is late? <laughs> Horrible sinners. <laughs> That'll fry them. <laughs> Yet Murudha was not late for anything, in spite of the fact they had so many people and so many details to look after. If the food was needed at 10 o'clock, it was ready by 10 o'clock. It wasn't late. And he provided hot water for such a large number and quite early in the morning. Because they weren't hot running water. They had, uh, in Ganeshpuri, uh, in the ashram, they had a big, uh, huge pot which they'd uh, build a fire under and then you could go and get half a bucket of water, and, uh, of hot water, and then you'd add cold water to it and you'd take a bucket bath. And you'd go down, line up for the water in the morning. So. <laughs> uh. Uh, <clears throat> the trip was extremely good. Nityananda Baba looked after us, and that was how he blessed all of us. You like that? Okay. Uh, got a few more. Okay, then, then in, um, in January of 1972, my parents came out to Ganeshpuri because they despaired of ever seeing me again. And uh, they came for a visit. They spent a month there. It was fantastic. Uh, and they came out with the parents of another ashramite. Uh, her name was Janaki, Ram's wife, Janaki. And her two parents came. So the four parents came out. <clears throat> and this is a question by Morty Newman, who is Janaki's father. <clears throat> and it's about Judaism. So here we go. This is Morty Newman. My parents were very responsive to Baba. I can't say the same for the Newmans. <laughs> I, they seemed like completely befuddled by it. But my mother used to come to Guru Gita religiously, loved the Guru Gita. <clears throat> so, 
And then she started meditating and so on. <clears throat> Morty says, our religion does not accept reincarnation and karma. Please explain these concepts. <clears throat> Baba. <laughs> Baba's very good talking to parents, by the way. <laughs> Baba, I've studied the Jewish religion <laughs> as it is followed in India, and many Indian Jews come to visit me. Generally speaking, we find a very great similarity between our modes of life and modes of conduct. We have their holy texts in our library also. If the Jews don't accept reincarnation and karma, what is it that they accept? <clears throat> Are they not in favor of good actions? Yes. Don't they oppose evil actions? Yes. Well, that is what we do. We support good actions and denounce bad actions. And that's what the theory of karma is. <laughs> it's great, huh? <clears throat> And we certainly accept reincarnation. If there's no rebirth, if your present actions do not form your future karma, if actions are without consequences, one can live any way he likes. What's the need of sticking to do good actions alone? By recommending good actions, your scriptures and facts support rebirth. <laughs> one performs good deeds only because good deeds bring good fruits. Well, they do say, except rebirth in another world, right? In the heaven world. So, One avoids evil deeds because evil deeds bring evil consequences. There is no escape from the consequences of actions. The Jews may not accept reincarnation, <clears throat> but do they perform any funeral rites? Good deeds are performed so one may reap the fruits, the good fruits of those good deeds. He who has had a direct experience of the truth must also have visited all the different worlds. Just as there is a world on the moon, similarly there's a world called the world of ancestors or the world of our forefathers. And you can read about it in my book, Play of Consciousness. He just took Morty on a trip there somewhere. <clears throat> Reincarnation is also a fact. Then the Ten Commandments or rules of conduct prescribed by the Jewish faith are the same as the 10 rules prescribed by the Hindu faith. That's Baba's answer. Good? I don't know. What? <laughs> Morty didn't, Morty wasn't listening. It's called external considering. External considering. <clears throat> okay, then another thing that we did a lot in the ashram was chant. We chanted a lot, many hours a day. Uh, we did the RT several times a day. We did the Guru Gita every morning. We did uh, the Vishnu Sahasranam in the afternoon. Uh, we chanted the uh, Shiva Mahimna at night uh, and other th chants all the time. And when I first got there, we did the Bhagavad Gita in the morning. <clears throat> so uh, here's a question from Rana. Rana was a uh, an Indian, a young Indian fellow, uh, stayed there for quite a long time. Uh, he says, <clears throat> this is August of 72, does one who is meditating very well need to recite Guru Gita, Vishnu Sastranam, and chant the various chants? Now either Rana was uh, up to something or it was a planted question, I'm not sure in his case. Baba would want to make a certain point, he would have somebody 
ask the question, and then he'd make the points. Uh, but Baba says, what does a good meditator do when he's chanting, uh, chanting the Guru Gita, Vishnu Sasranam, or other chants? After meditating for one or two hours, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? <clears throat> Would even a good meditator be able to meditate like Vyas? That's the great sage Vyas who meditated for 40 years or something. Uh, it was Vyas himself who said, you must never neglect swadhyay, that is chanting. Swadhyay means self-study, but it means, Baba used to apply it to meaning chanting these texts like the Guru Gita, the swadhyay. After meditating well for one or two hours, you doze off during swadhyay. What's the use? On the contrary, the samadhi, which comes about on the hearing of the sacred mantras, should come very easily to a good meditator. The Guru Gita recitation in particular will help you meditate far more deeply. It will not, it will not take you away from meditation. By the way, the medita uh, Guru Gita is tomorrow morning. So come. <clears throat> what do you understand by chanting? <clears throat> and where does your mind get focused during meditation? Doesn't it get focused on God? That is exactly what is happening in chanting. The effect of meditation may not last that long, but chanting keeps you intoxicated the whole day. And from that point of view, chanting is even more effective than meditation. There are so many so-called yogis who complain that their lives are without joy, their hearts are dry, and they aren't, haven't attained anything. And that is because they're practicing yoga and neglecting chanting. If you meditate and neglect chanting, then your heart will remain as dry as wood. <laughs> the meditation scriptures say that a seeker should do japa, recite the mantra, for a very long uh, period of time with perfect faith and reverence, being fully aware of the meaning of the mantra and the goal of the mantra. He's actually quoting Patanjali there. Patanjali says, you do the practice with reverent devotion for a very long time. And you do the mantra, remembering the meaning of the mantra, which is the divine. <clears throat> Patanjali enjoins, oh yeah, Patanjali enjoins a seeker to do japa with true respect and reverence, with spontaneous love. A seeker shouldn't do japa simply because Baba insists on it, or because the ashram discipline demands it. Let's try that, it's a good dharana. To repeat the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, which uh, we just heard a, a wonderful talk about the, uh, the mantra club. Uh, but Patanjali says you should do it with respect and reverence and with love. Baba would always say, repeat it with love. And so let's just do that for just half a minute or so and consciously do it with love. See if that, see how that works. Let's do it silently. Om Namah Shivaya. Repeat it with love. Okay. 
Does that make a difference, that intentionality? How many found it made a difference? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting that we have that ability to make a decision like that. So you can use that in your meditation. And Bhava says, the japa which you do under compulsion won't do much good. Japa or mantra repetition should come spontaneously from the heart and it should be done with true respect and reverence. <clears throat> it is because the seeker doesn't want to chant or doesn't like to chant with reverence that his heart becomes dry after some time and he loses his joy and after some time he wouldn't even be able to meditate. And there's a lot of fry in, the, in Baba's words here, isn't it? If you want to be fried or if you can't avoid a fry. Chanting in Swadhyay raises a seeker to a state which is beyond the mind. A great siddha says, one who gets immersed in chanting becomes divine, becomes God himself. So there's that. And finally, one short one on mantra, and then we can meditate. What do you think of this, Baba? Huh? You like him? Yes. Fantastic. <clears throat> Question. When I repeat the mantra, sometimes my mind stops, but other times my mind begins to roam among external things. That's a universal question, isn't it? Baba. In those things, too, you should see the object of the mantra that's in the external things. Continue saying Om Namah Shivaya to whatever your mind rests on. Wherever it goes, say Om Namah Shivaya to that. <clears throat> Regard everything as Shiva. A great Siddha has said that the ornaments may be many, but they're all made of the same gold. Identify with the gold, not the particular form of the ornaments. So it's all Shiva, no matter where it goes, even negative thoughts, even tearing thoughts, just it's all Shiva, see it all as Shiva. Baba says, repeat the mantra with the same view. Meditate will not take long for you to grasp the reality. That's a really good tip. So let's meditate. <clears throat> we'll meditate for 10 minutes, and let's say the mantra. And there are two very good techniques that we just heard from Baba. Uh, just now, wherever the mind goes, understand that as Shiva. Or else, if you prefer, to say the mantra consciously with love and reverence. Either one. You can do Girish A or Girish B. <laughs> okay, we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. And once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Now it lies. Hello. 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 Hello.